0: Welcome back to Expo Wired. I'm your host, Josh Kessler. We have the other host here, Buddy Forbes. Buddy, how are you today?
1: I'm doing great, Josh. How are
0: you? I'm great for a Friday when it's kind of feeling like a Monday. I'm a little nervous about it. (laughs) I don't don't know how to go about this, but we're going to make it work. And we have a special guest on the phone uh, in West Virginia there. Um, We have the Mountain Stage producer, uh, Adam Harris. How are you, Adam? I'm doing great. Good to be with you, and thanks for having me uh, on your podcast. Excited to talk with you. And you are lucky number one, my friend. Well, we'll try to set a good standard for you. Everything will be better from here on out, no doubt. <laughs> well, I think we'll be okay. And and you uh, you bring a lot to the table. And like I've mentioned, you know about this show too, buddy. We we want people to learn behind the scenes of what goes on, especially with the whole show procedures. And we want people to learn something new when they when they leave uh, Expo Wire. We want them to know. Something new, something fascinating.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, buddy, you want to start this off with uh, questions for Adam?
1: Yeah. So, Adam, the band REM put on a legendary performance at Mountain Stage in 1991. What is the significance of that performance for Mountain Stage? Um, well,
2: it's, it's really hard to uh, overstate it. It made a big difference for Mountain Stage and the future of the program. At 1991, uh, Mountain Stage was still carried live, uh, both here in Charleston, West Virginia and throughout the state, but also nationally. So the show went up live every, after, every Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And it was heard nationally, uh, live, like it or not, you know, no editing works at all. Um, And my understanding is my predecessor, Andy Ridenour, was one of the founding members of Mountain Stage, along with our host, Larry Gross, and our engineer, Francis Fisher. And my understanding is that it all kind of started from uh, one of the members of RDM's team uh, was a West Virginia boy himself, and then Peter Buck who, of course, was a member of R.E.M., came on Mountain Stage uh, previous to 1991 with an artist called Kevin Kinney. And my understanding is that he said that day, oh, maybe I'll bring the band back someday. And everybody kind of laughed, like, yeah, right. And then, you know, several months later, R.E.M. had this new album coming out, and Warner Brothers Records reached out to my predecessor, Andy, uh, to see if we would be interested in having uh, having R.E.M. on Mountain Stage. And Larry, our host and co-founder and artistic director, he tells this story really well and I've heard him tell it a lot but I mean uh, Andy went down to Larry's in the studio where they were working and said hey, Larry would you like to have REM on the show and and, and of course Larry kind of thought he was joking and Larry said Andy I do REM on the show any day of the week any time of day it doesn't matter if it's a Tuesday at 2 in the morning we want REM on the show <laughs> and so uh Turns out they were really easy to work with. They wanted to do the show our the way. They wanted to do it in the venue that we did it in. Uh, we moved the show actually back over to the Capitol Plaza Theater, and you know it's really hard to it's hard to take yourself back to that time, especially you know I was nine years old at the time. I didn't know who nine, uh, REM was, that's for sure. But I can sympathize with them because the show was still relatively new. From 1983 to 91, they hadn't even been around ten years. Um, They they picked up national distribution really quickly, Um, but this R.E.M., the world was paying attention to Mountain Stage that day because, as you said, they only did a couple of live performances. One of them was Saturday Night Live, one of them was MTV Unplugged, and the third one, which was the only ticketed event they did, was Mountain Stage, and everybody was nervous. They, they, They had never charged $20 for a ticket before, and that's what they charged for the R.E.M. show. Of course, it sold out in minutes. And, uh, we're still talking about it today. You know, last year, uh, R.E.M. actually issued their performance from Mountain Stage commercially for the first time when they reissued, uh, in a deluxe edition of Out of Time, which was the album they released back in 91. And so that was exciting for us. Mountain Stage got a lot of publicity out of that, and it was exciting for us to get to work with R.E.M. again 25 years later. And, uh, that, that tape had been traded around on the internet and, and uh, through tape trading for many, many years, but it, last year was the first time it ever became uh, commercially available, and that did a great deal of publicity for us. It was a big deal. And then last year we also had an intern come in, and uh, he collected some stories from audience members that had been there that night, and he documented those and turned it into a 30-minute documentary called uh, a, big T- a Big Band Comes to a Small Town When R.E.M. Visited West Virginia. And it turned out really great. It was fun to get that audience perspective for those folks who had how they got their tickets, how long did they wait in line, uh, what did they remember about the show? You know, a lot of great memories for that. And uh, clearly, R.M. still a thing that everybody likes to talk about today, and we're still talking about it here at Mountain Stage all this twenty six years later.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Wow, that is, that is fascinating, definitely. And like you said, that that made a that, that all eyes were on the Mountain Stage. I mean, I wonder what. Uh, yeah, and and Andy likes to say that when
2: that happened, you know, he had to make less phone calls and his phone started ringing more often. You know, once REM put their stamp of approval on Mountain Stage, it became something people wanted to do.
0: See that that's fascinating. How something could just you know just just a snap of a fingers so things can change. Just just like you mentioned there, and and you it sounds like you your processor there you've you've had a lot to learn from. I mean you, that. That helps you. It and that's exciting too. How is that experience learning learning from him? Oh wow. Well, well I should say, you know, if it weren't for
2: Andy, my predecessor, you know, I wouldn't get answers to the emails I send out today. I mean okay. he built up a reputation for this program over about twenty five years. Andy started it in nineteen eighty three and he retired in two thousand and twelve and he helped build the relationships with a lot of these agents uh, that are still in the business today. A lot of agencies that we've worked with over the years—they uh, are familiar with Mountain Stage, and they have an understanding about what it is, and that it's a historic thing, and that it's a, um, something that their artists—hopefully—they want their artists to do. And you know, that's all built uh, on the shoulders of Andy and Larry, and all the great—and the great reputation they built over the years and then yeah mandy was a great mentor for me i'm thankful every day for him and you know i'm not afraid to say that i still have to call him up every once in a while and get his advice
0: (laughs) so that's fascinating to to to, for that you know like that's like the staple now that's like so you're 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 almost like rhyming category as far as like people knowing about you and and that's cool to have that kind of status you know yeah
2: well thanks for saying that i really appreciate that and it's a miracle, you know, uh, somebody like the Ryman, you know, can be successful in a town like Nashville, but pulling off a show like ours in a place like West Virginia is not easy. Uh, and a lot of people said it couldn't be done. Um, but I, I, Larry says this a lot, and I, I believe him, and I've seen it uh, the evidence of it, but it just turned out to be the only place we could have done a show like this. Um, we're in West Virginia. You know, we don't get the same entertainment options that others do. Um, and so, thankfully, that we had that national exposure to offer the artists. We were able to bring them to West Virginia when they might not have come otherwise. Uh, you know, and we we're able to turn them on to a new audience and then turn our radio audience on to them. So, it's, it's, it's great to have that reputation. And, and so many artists just talk to us about um, when they've listened to the show. We, we also had a successful CD line in the 90s. A lot of people found out about Mountain Stage through that CD series. It uh, was very popular. Uh, there was a John Harford one, especially. There was a tribute to John Harford, and then there was a John Harford live from Mountain Stage. And you know, just about every week, somebody comes up on the show, a musician on the show, and says, "I really love that tribute to John Harford record." You know, which is
0: great. Well, that's that's great. That definitely is. So, are you originally? I had not never had that. But was able to ask you. So, you're originally from West Virginia, correct?
2: That's right. I grew up in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. Uh, I went to school in Radford, Virginia, and then came back to uh, Charleston to do my internship with Mountain Stage. And so this is quite literally the only job I've ever had. (laughs) I I was in the right place at the right time, and believe me, uh, you can call it timing or karma or luck, whatever you want to call it. But um, I I was very lucky to be in the position where I was, when I was. And then I uh, was able to put in the work and the elbow grease to uh, prove myself to the organization. And Andy was grooming me for his job before I even knew it, I think. But um, yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad that he was uh, able to train me and work with me. And he taught me uh, so much about what I still use today, that's for sure.
0: Well, obviously, you're and the right man for the I'm job. I'm proud to get to work for a show like this that has a national spotlight, but it's based here in West Virginia. and I was trying to have to leave West Virginia to work in the music business, but now I'm not leaving unless I have to. <laughs> gotcha. great. Well, let's let's jump ships a minute, and I'm going to ask you uh, another question. So you you like you said you got your start in 2005. I'd like to know, you know, and a lot of our audience would like to know. I know Buddy would like to know. How has the booking procedures evolved from your start in 2005? I know you've been around them. How, how is that? How's that changed? How what? Talk to me about that.
2: You know, I wasn't booking in 2005, although um, a lot of times if we were looking for a West Virginia actor, somebody, Andy would let me give him the call and send the offer and negotiate with them. and so he let me uh, work my way in that way. Um, but it still seems like even in 2005, more stuff was being done over the phone uh, then than is now. Um, my phone hardly ever rings, you know, um, it, which is amazing, but... Everything is done via email now, and that was something, an adjustment that Andy had to make because he was from the old days of the, of the uh, Rolodex and the phone numbers and leaving messages and getting through receptionists and all of that, and uh, there's still a lot of barriers to entry when it comes to uh, getting with certain agencies and management, uh, but it's you know it's really simple to send an email now, and it's convenient. Um, people are quick to answer, usually. Um and you know the booking is one thing, and and we we do work with a lot of different aspects of the artist's team. Sometimes we're working with publicists. Sometimes it's label. Sometimes it's management, and then sometimes it's agent. It just depends on the artist team and who they have on board with them. Sometimes we do. Excuse me. Sometimes we deal with the artists themselves, which is always. So an interesting. Thing. <laughs> um, sometimes I wish they had management, and sometimes I wish they didn't have management. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the thing about, you know, the entire industry has changed. I mean, and I'm sure you would agree with that, but in between, I mean, there's the CD boom of the, of the 2000s, which was followed immediately by the bust that was caused by Napster. Mm-hmm. Um, the entire industry changed, and then right when I got out of college is when Twitter was invented you know, the iPhone didn't come along until 2007, no. and it's really hard to imagine life before the iPhone, really, yeah. um, because it's just such an everyday part of our lives, not just our entertainment, but our work, how we get our news, how we consume music, movies, TV. Everything is based around the iPhone and the smartphones.
0: World. And, you know, it's hard
2: to think that just, you know, 10 years ago, we, or 11 years ago, we didn't even have that. Um, in 2005, MySpace was the thing, and it was mm. like you didn't exist if you didn't have a MySpace page. Exactly. And here we are now that most people I know don't even think about MySpace when it comes to the website they think about when it comes to music. And then, you know, gosh, I mean, I remember in 2011, uh, the Civil Wars were on our show, and that was a very successful duo with John Paul White and Joy Williams. Mm hmm. And they built an audience largely on Twitter. And I remember their manager coming on the show, and we were talking backstage afterwards just about how inventive they had been. And he said, you know, we booked a majority of our first tour on Twitter. You know, they didn't have representation. (laughs) Their music was catching on viral. They had had some TV placement and some songs placed in TV. Um, So they were very popular and gaining traction. And they utilized that on Twitter to book everything from house concerts to uh, larger shows. And that's what I really realized, I was like, wow, you know, this is a paradigm shift. You know, this is direct-to-artist marketing right here and direct-to-audience marketing, you know. And it's the same with Instagram today. Um, the best artists really know how to keep their fans uh, engaged even when new music isn't coming out. Um, and I think that's part of the challenge is just to be where your users are, where your fans are, you know. And, and being in all those different places, is it takes time. And then it also takes a lot of creativity and intuition and a lot of uh, understanding
0: of your audience, you know. And what works on Facebook doesn't work for Twitter and vice versa, you know. Exactly. Would you agree that it's hard nowadays to find that audience? Because, I mean, you've got Snapchat, you've got Instagram, you've got Twitter, you've got Facebook, you've got every little social platform under the sun.
2: That's right, and it feels like you're missing people if you're not on all of them.
0: Exactly. be hard to manage, especially with a small team. Um, you have to be effective with that stuff, and you have to think
2: very consciously about building, um, I hate to even say this out loud, but build your brand. Right. Your brand is what those folks see on social media. Um, you know, Mountain Stage there was a time when the broadcast happened on radio, and then it was gone. Yep. And if you didn't, you know, on-demand listening, meant you had to be by your radio to listen on demand, right? Or else you missed it. And if you didn't tape it on cassette um there was another really
0: another chance to hear it until a rebroadcast came around true well now yeah. you know we have a certain amount
2: of audience through the radio every week and then we have another audience that downloads the podcast every week um, and then we have folks that consume content at our NPR music page um, we post stuff on uh, West Virginia Public Broadcasting's website and so I think it's all about just curating the content for each platform and trying to make sure it, gets across what you're trying to get across. And, mm-hmm. and it's the, hard, the hardest part is to not be sub-promotional all the time. Because if you're selling, selling, selling all the time, your users are going to see through that. And they are say, well, I'm just being sold to all the time. So unless you're selling something they really, really,
1: really want, yeah. you have to be more aware of just their
2: everyday habits and what kind of things they like to see in their feed in hopes that you'll build up that trust with them that once you do try to sell them something, that they're going to come through for you. Um, so, I mean, it just takes a lot of creativity
0: and, and understanding of your audience to be in all those different places. Oh, I agree. And like my boss says, you know, she she tells me, you got to tell your story, and that's pretty much what you're doing. If you're not trying to push something hard to sell, you've got to let them know about you and what's going on. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So... But that I also think too, as far as booking, I think a lot. It's still a lot about relationships, and like you mentioned, Absolutely. those those you know those past relationships that you keep keep throughout life, or the new ones that you build. Those are the turning point for a a company like you know, like yours and ours. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And every once in a while, you know, sometimes you need a favor, you know. And so, um, <laughs> You don't want to be
2: hard. You don't want to be hard on people all the time because every once in a while they might be able to help you out. And that's one thing I've taken uh, to heart over the years. I realize this is that first of all, you can learn something from everybody, anybody, from the security guard to the venue staff to the lighting director. You can learn something from all these people, even if it's maybe you learn something you don't want to do, or you learn how to not to act. You should be aware of everybody around you and how they conduct themselves because that will help you uh, you know, maintain those relationships, just like you said. and I, I'm never afraid to learn from somebody or listen to somebody, and I trust people with their expertise. I don't claim to know it all. That's for sure. Um, I think part of the business and being successful in the business is sur- surrounding yourself with people that know what they're doing um, and trusting them to do the best work possible. And if you treat them like a team… Then there'll be team players, and if everybody works towards the same goal, um, then you come out with a good product. And that's thankfully what Mountain Sage has been able to do. Larry is an inspirational leader. He really knows how to rally the troops, and he's got everybody working towards his goal, and it becomes everybody's goal, which is a good radio product. Um, But you're right. I mean, just maintaining those relationships is important. It can't be all about business. And just that one little personal connection you have with somebody, even if it's you know they like – uh, you know, if they like to gamble, or if you know they're a Redskins fan, or if you know they
1: enjoy
2: uh, University of Kentucky basketball, you know, yeah. then you can always start with that, and then they're first, you know, to be personal about it before you talk to business, and uh, that, helps, that helps you just maintain that relationship. And reminds folks that it's not just all about the business and that uh, we all have something else to offer each other on occasion.
0: And that's good advice, you know, for someone looking to get into this business or, you know, for for someone who's already in this business that can actually, that actually wants to grow in the business, so. Yeah, that's right,
2: man. Just learn from everybody. Like I said, internships are a big deal. I had to do several of those for my degree
0: and, and internships are another thing. You may find out what you don't want to do through an internship. But that's the beauty of it, you know. You got to try it. You got to get in there
2: and, and see what it's actually like in the work in the real
0: world, you know. Exactly, buddy. You gonna take? I think you got another question for him over here.
1: Yeah. So I mean, everything you just said basically leads into our next point. Um, through the teamwork and the awareness and the overcoming of the evolutions of media, um, fighting to stay relevant. Mountain stage is turning thirty-five. Well. By the time this episode drops, Mountain Age will have already turned 35. Can you just talk a little about that?
2: Yeah, um, it's been remarkable, really. I mean, a program like ours, first of all, no show is supposed to last 35 years. I mean, very few shows in television, radio, uh, or any other platform last 30 years. And so it's been great in that aspect. But not only are we still around, we're actually growing we've experienced a huge growth period over the last couple of years. Um, NPR Music is our distributor, and they're the ones who sell our show to stations across the country. And they've been working really hard for us, and we've been putting out good content. I think they pay attention to our social media and the, uh, the style and the quality of artists that we have. And people are really looking for something that's, true and authentic these days and it's so hard to find i mean the world is just so cluttered with things uh you're being sold something all the time and i think people really learn who they can trust when it comes to uh turning them on to good music and mountain stage has a great reputation for that a lot of the artists uh that are you know popular today were on mountain stage five years ago you know what i mean like Uh, Jason Isbell is a great example of an artist that we supported in the very beginning in 2009 when he uh, released his first solo album. And Jason's been great to us. He keeps coming back, and I hope he's going to come back sometime in the next couple years. But, you know, that's an artist that not many people paid to see him that night. Uh, But when he came back a couple years later, he was the headliner, and we sold out, you know. radio audience to the ticket buying audience i think they've come to trust mountain stage uh for music discovery turn them on to stuff they may not have heard about otherwise and you know it's been a proven formula for us we sell tickets to our shows and most of the time people buy that ticket to see one particular artist maybe a couple of them but inevitably almost 100 percent of the time they go home talking about a different artist that they may not have heard about before and chances are they'll become lifelong fans of that artist and that's that's to me just to to know that we've turned somebody on to something they may like for the rest of their lives uh i just absolutely love that feeling
1: right absolutely and you know that's something that's always going to have them connected to mountain stage It's to say the first time that i heard this artist was at mountain stage and that's always going to connect that memory with you in their head when they think about it that's right that's right
2: We're making connections with artists too. A couple good stories just in the last couple years. We had a a band on called Black Prairie, which was kind of a Portland based band, and a lot of the members of that band were also in the Decemberists. When we had Black Prairie on the show, we also had Rhett Miller from the old 97s. They met on our show. They ended up performing together that evening on Mountain Sage, and then lo and behold, within a year, they did a record together. Rhett Miller with Black Prairie. And they all met. It's all because they met on Mountain Sage, which was great. And then uh, a couple years ago, when Wilco came back to do the show, um, we booked Joan Shelley, an artist from Kentucky you guys are probably familiar with. Mm -hmm. Um, She was on that show with Wilco, got to talking to Jeff Tweedy, and ended up recording and producing an album with Tweedy in Chicago uh, that ended up on a bunch of best-of lists. Uh, at the end of the year last year. so those great connections and, and Joan gave us credit. she's like, yeah we met right here in the green room she pointed over in the corner like yep we talked right over there <laughs> you know? um, And that's really exciting you know to, to see those
0: collaborations uh, grow it's great. well let's let's go into you a, as we conclude the the our first official podcast for Expo Wired. I want to talk to, let the fans know a little about you and and your hobbies and I have to mention, The hobbies, the fascinating hobbies, of course, of roller derby and professional wrestling. Tell me about that. Those are the two I at least admit
2: to. uh, (laughs) I used to be a lot more involved in roller derby than I am now. When uh, that team, there's a team here in Charleston called the Chemical Valley Roller Girls. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and I were in on the ground floor of that for the most part. We were... A couple of about six or eight people that were on the core of the team in the very, very beginning. Um, we all basically learned to skate together, and we learned the rules of roller derby together. There was one woman who had moved up here that started the team. Her name was Liz Turner, and uh, she was about the only one that knew the rules of roller derby. And <laughs> uh, I was kind of helping out. You know, My mentality is always help out, jump in, uh, you know, be a be a useful set of hands whenever you can. And so I would help them set up their track. I would help them run drills and time things. And I got to where I was a pretty decent skater, actually. Huh. Um, but my professional job kind of – with Rotary man, it's such a passion. It, just like music, like you have to devote your life to it. And eventually it got to where I didn't want them to be relying on me. There was a lot of travel involved and, of course, no money and uh so you everything you did was basically out of your pocket or sometimes you would get gas money to drive to about um but i didn't want those girls to, to, be, to be relying on me and me not be able to be there for them because they worked so hard and they didn't deserve that and so eventually i had to hang it up and it was the same with my wife um we both just uh had to step away so that we didn't um uh, we didn't want them counting on us for anything but i still follow the teams here locally the sport has grown so much, and it's so exciting to see. We even ended up having um, a regional championship tournament here in Charleston, and it was just such a proud moment for me, knowing that we'd gone from Skateland out at Campbell's Creek, uh, you know, with the with the farm animals and the balloons drawn on the walls, uh, all the way to the Charleston Civic Center with national competition. That was pretty, that was really cool and really rewarding to watch, and I'm really proud of those girls. And um, man, I still love to go to a roller derby bout. I haven't been to one for a while, but it's uh, so
0: it's so exciting, and, and and if you know anything about roller derby, you wouldn't be surprised to know that I'm also a huge professional wrestling fan. So, <laughs> just it, goes with it. I have been my whole life, basically, since I was uh, eight years old. I've been watching wrestling. and um, Me too. I go. <laughs> I made it a point last year. I made it a point to go to as many wrestling shows live as I could, and I ended up being at 31 shows. Wow. So there,
2: were, there were more weeks in the year that I went to a show than there were ones I didn't. <laughs> so, and uh, I just love that, and then I also... I avoided getting into wrestling behind the scenes for the longest time simply because I wanted to enjoy it as a fan and I liked being able to go somewhere and not have anybody ask me things, you know, something I could just buy a ticket to and go and enjoy. Um, But eventually, a friend of mine was a ring announcer. He took me down to Madison, West Virginia and he was getting ready to hang it up and he didn't want to announce anymore. He's like, I told these guys you're my replacement and I was like, What? And he's like, Yeah, you're gonna be the next ring announcer. I was like, No, I'm not gonna do that, you know, I've never done that before. I don't think it's right. You should find somebody else but he got me in the ring and let me do some ring announcing and boy I was hooked from that moment. I was like, Yeah, I wanna do this and so I worked fifteen shows last year. I was ring announcer at fifteen shows. Um and time commitment again, and, and, and again, there's no money in it. You know, nobody, nobody's doing it for the for the, all the great cash rewards. Uh, people are doing it for the passion and for the fun of it. And when you have that, you've got the purest form of entertainment. I think is when everybody's doing it for all the right reasons.
0: And oh yeah, that's certainly my experience with pro wrestling. Well, we listen, Adam. We appreciate you talking with us and you sharing your stories and letting us get a behind the scenes look at the mountain stage and. We just want to thank you and much more, you know, much success in life. I know you'll do great. You're still going strong, and uh, we appreciate you and the best of luck to all your future endeavors. And you, um, if you ever need anything, you can always reach out to us. Uh, like I said, we're trying to grow this podcast. Buddy Forbes and Josh Kessel here for Expo Wired. Uh, we appreciate you. Like I said, first, first show. Is there anything else you want to tell the folks out there?
2: really appreciative of you guys having me on. It's an honor to be the first one here on the podcast with Josh and Buddy, and I appreciate you inviting me, and I hope if any of your listeners are interested, they'll go to Mm -hmm. mountainstage.org. We tape about 26 live shows a year. Most of them are in Charleston, West Virginia. We get up to Morgantown on occasion. We even make it over to Ashland every once in a while, so I hope folks will check out mountainstage.org and consider coming over to see us in
0: West Virginia sometime. We'd love that. Oh, they sure will. Appreciate your time, Adam. We appreciate you. Like I said, First Show Expo Wired. Make sure to check out our social site. Check out Facebook. Check out Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, EastKYExpo.com. We've got uh, our free uh, app. Download it for uh, iPhone and Android. Until next time, I'm Josh Kessler. And I'm Buddy Forbes. We'll see you on the wire.